thanks for joining us today. It's great to see all our faces here and then everybody online. I can't see your face. I can't give you coffee. We had wonderful coffee set up in our lobby, but you can drink one for me. So welcome. And, um, and here at Table Life Church, we just, we're, we're a church that our kind of theme, if you saw it out, outside on the street as well as I believe on our website too, is, is you belong, right? is that this is a place you can belong. So regardless of what your background is, what your week's been like, what you've been going through, the happy, the sad, everything in between, that you belong here. And we want to let you know that, and I hope that you experience that today. So, um, so we are in a message series that we've been unpacking these last, I believe this is our fifth week, five out of seven, do you believe it? We're kind of over the, over the hump here. Um, and it's been called Open Table because uh, we believe that Jesus' table is open. And so we've been journeying through the Gospel of Luke over these last few weeks, um, looking at the stories of Jesus around tables, because there's a whole bunch of them. Like, it's, it's said that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either coming from a table, going to a table, or at a table. He's eating and drinking his way through the Gospels, which for those of us who like to eat and drink is good news, right? Isn't it? So um, today, um, I, I want to start off with, uh, if you could imagine with me a few table scenarios. So I'm going to give you three of these. So ready? Okay, the first one, imagine a friend of yours bails on dinner with you for the third time. Ooh. And you want to have a talk with them, but you're not sure if the relationship at this stage is even worth it. Okay, number two, you're at a lunch meeting at work with your boss and some colleagues, and there's a terrible idea that's shared for your job, and everybody else is nodding their heads, your boss is kind of going along, and then on to the next item of business, and you're wondering if you should say something. The third one, ready? You have a, a... divisive political issue that comes up around the table when your relative announces that they saw something on the internet that they know is true. Your spouse looks at you as if she is shooting knives or he is shooting knives out of his eyes and you wonder what should you do, right? What would you have done in each of these situations? So in other words, what is your gut reaction to conflict? And maybe you had shudders because you just experienced one of these in, this last, in the last week, maybe the last 24 hours, who knows. But conflict is something that's inevitable when we share with people around tables. There is going to be conflict. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, something that comes with being around people at tables. And some of us would avoid conflict at all costs. You know, you heard one of those, you're like, I'm not going to say something, right? There's other of us that would say, oh, I would, you know, dive right in and, and give them what's coming to them, right? And let, correct them, put, lay them out. And it's interesting, there was an experiment done by some um, psychologists a number of years ago where they had some actors who uh, went to a movie theater. And at that time, you know, it was kind of like pre-COVID, so movies were very, very popular, and you had to get tickets, and they'd sell out. And also, there was like a line outside the movie theater to get in, and they had actors present that would go and cut in front of another actor in line. And they wanted to see what people's reactions would be. But first, before they actually did the experiment, they asked people, they asked people, what would you do if you saw somebody cut in line, in, in, not in front of you, but in front of somebody else in the movie theater? And of course, 
More than half the people said, oh, I'd definitely go, like, say something, like, tap him on the shoulder, excuse me, like, you know, you know that the line starts back there, whatever. Well, it's interesting. When they actually conducted the experiment, nobody said, any, said or did anything. Nobody said or did anything. And then, then, as part of the experiment, they kind of had some increasingly serious scenarios, one that involved some violence, and would you believe, and, and one that involved even stealing from somebody, it's from another actor from her purse. And would you believe not one person did anything? The real truth is that everybody, all of us, struggle with conflict or even anticipating conflict. But what's interesting is every conflict that we uh, encounter, whether around tables or other places, every conflict boils down to this one truth. And that truth is, we're not getting what we want. We're not getting what we want. Meaning that we have some, for better or worse, we have some agenda. We have an agenda. And of course, thinking of a conflict, maybe one of these that had resonated, you might say, but of course, they were wrong, right? They are unfair. They're hypocritical. They're ill-informed. And truthfully, you might be right. But even if you are the reason for conflict is still that we're not getting what we want from that other person. You want, for example, her to think or believe blank, and she isn't doing that. You, you want him to stop doing this or start doing this. You want this person to understand you. You want to, them to love you. You want them to like you. You want them to respect you. You have an agenda, right? But the good news is that Jesus himself in scripture was no stranger to conflicts. He wasn't a stranger to conflicts or to people having agendas. And so we've seen over the last few weeks that Jesus had multiple interactions with people around tables. And many of Jesus' own meals with people were controversial. They were controversial things. Who Jesus dined with. He dined with the wrong people. Everybody talked about, oh my gosh, he's, you should be dining with people that were kind of like your status or higher, and he's like going downhill, right? Who does that? He's touching untouchable people. He's calling, believe this, he's calling disciples who were nobodies, who, who hadn't made the cut in school, and he's calling them to follow him. What is this? A very controversial thing. See, Jesus met opposition because of these things. And throughout Luke's gospel, though, we see that Jesus is really turning things upside down. He's flipping tables even before the famous or infamous table flipping scene that occurs towards his crucifixion. He's turning things upside down, and he wants us to recognize that. And one of the things that he turns upside down are people's agendas, are our agendas, especially, especially when they become barriers to relationships with others and to God. So Jesus shows us there is a better way, but it involves the key that is changing our agenda. Changing our agenda. So that's kind of the theme where we're going today. And so the story today is a meal around a table where things go bad from the start. And it's not a very good time, and um, I want to apologize. We're going to read a lot of scripture today, but I think it's really important to focus here because these are three, basically, events, three different conflicts 
that occur around the same table but happen to different people, that involve different people. And these last few weeks, I'm not going to go into great detail about this, but we've been talking about the three kinds of tables where Jesus is present in these stories, but also that we draw from to say that we should be present in our lives. The table that we're recipients, the kind of community of those who are believers that we gather around this table, we gather around what we call like a sacred sense of table. But then there's a table that's where the, we're the hosts, in our homes. That could be just as a holy place. And then there's that third table, which is the table that is out in the community, in our neighborhoods, in restaurants, and other places. And God is just as present in that table as he is in our homes, as he is in this space too. But there's this table scene here where there's these three different characters, there's these three different types of people, the guests, the hosts, and recipients, and there's three conflicts that are faced at the same time. And what's interesting is banquets at the time, when people would eat with one another, um, it was a great opportunity for teachers like Jesus, he's a teacher, he's a rabbi, he's in that position, it was a great opportunity for teachers to impart their wisdom and share it with others. So Jesus is kind of seizing this opportunity to, to turn things upside down, and he shows that we, if we are called to live differently, that means that we, those of us who are following Christ, we have to face conflict differently. So we're going to look at the first conflict, first story here, and this is Luke chapter 14, starting with verses 1 through 6. So, and all this, by the way, is printed in your worship guide if you've got a little piece of paper. It's also printed online for those of you guys online that you can go and visit that if you want to follow along or come back and revisit this later. Um, so Luke tells us, starting in verse 1 through, through 6, this is our first story. Um, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Ooh. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had what to say? Nothing. Nothing to say. So conflict number one, this is all happening around this table. The recipient's agenda. The recipients are the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the ones that had invited Jesus here in the first place, is being right. Hmm, they want to be right. But then we see Jesus' agenda, something very, very different than being right. It's about being whole, whole. So the meal starts off with conflict. And what is the conflict about? It's about this Sabbath healing, this, this guy that, that comes in on the scene. And what's interesting in this scene is that it's a silent conflict. You know what a silent conflict is, right? Nobody says something like, you know, she walks in the door, throws the bag down, sits down on the couch, and you're like, I have no idea what happened right there. You have no idea. Or, or he comes in and he's like, you know, like this, like kick the dog, like whatever, goes slams the door and you're like, oh my, what happened, right? Or, or this is my favorite. You, you're invited over someone's house for dinner and you enter and you walk in and it's like somebody can cut the atmosphere, the air with a knife. You're like, something just happened before I walked in to this scene. Maybe I should like turn around and go the other way, right? It's a silent conflict. Nobody's saying anything, but there's something there. You can feel it. 
And so it's Sabbath. It's Sabbath. And in, in for the, the Jewish people, their Sabbath was a holy time where nobody did work. Nobody was supposed to lift a finger. They had things all planned out ahead of time so that you wouldn't have to even technically be doing work. So everybody is watching Jesus as this gentleman is walking in on the scene. Remember, houses were kind of open. It's kind of like your patio. So you had people coming by, walking in and out. And this guy comes in who comes to Jesus. And they're looking at him with the objective of catching him, of catching him. So this guy steps in. He has a swelling condition. It's ripe for conflict, and you can taste it. And what does Jesus do? He knows he's right. He begins to lecture the Pharisees and tell them how they are misled and that they need to go home and do their scripture reading and homework No, he uses evidence and articles and experience, and he points them and gives them references. He texts it to them and says, you should read this and this and this. No. What does he do? He asks questions. He asks questions. He asks questions. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Is it, would you, if you were in a situation and your kid or your pet, you know, we're going to consider ox your pet. So if you have a fur baby, your pet or your kid or your pet is in trouble, what would you do? Would you like sit there and say, okay, I'm going to wait for tomorrow, like for tomorrow to happen? No, of course not. Nobody would do that. See, Jesus's questions diffuse the tension. His questions diffuse the tension, but they also reveal the true agenda that's happening here. The true agenda, they're trying to trap him or catch him in in saying something different. And so throughout Luke, we see that the Pharisees, the majority, their their agenda was about being right, about being right. And isn't that often our agenda? Wouldn't you agree? That we want to be right when we're in a conflict. In the heat of a conflict, we all want to be right. But let's all face this, that winning a conflict can mean killing a relationship. I've done that before. You've done that before. Jesus' agenda is much different. It's healing, not harming. It's bring wholeness rather than destruction. Jesus, it's interesting, Jesus never answers his own questions. He never does. Because for him, it's not about being right. It's about bringing wholeness. So I'm going to ask you, have you ever sacrificed a relationship to be right? What if you attempted to bring wholeness rather than destruction what if you just got curious, right? The first thing out of your mouth, instead of saying, Aunt, you're wrong in that, instead of saying that, to ask a question, to get curious, to know a little bit of the story maybe behind something and you're assuming that you think you know. Don't settle for being right. Make things right. Ask questions and listen because if we start by listening, isn't that exactly what we want people to do with us? We want them to listen to us. And that's where Jesus points. Instead of being right as our priority, being whole, having a wholeness of relationship is priority. He allows his questions to be answered themselves. So that's the first conflict that happens. So imagine this is the most amazing dinner party, right? You're having this going on, but then there's a second conflict that arises here, and that's in verses 7 through 14. So Jesus, this is about Jesus, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So he's saying, story time, guys. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the hosts who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat, 
Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves, lift themselves up, will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors to look good, right? If you do, they may invite you back. Isn't that a good thing? We're going to unpack that. And so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So conflict number two is about the hosts, the hosts. The host's agenda, this is about the story he's telling. The host's agenda was to look good, was to look good. But Jesus, Jesus' agenda is upside down. Instead of looking good, it's about lifting up, lifting others up. So in, in seven, verses 7 through 14, it, it's interesting because it, usually this is not recognized as a parable. Often by, by people in my position preaching or teaching, um, they usually, we usually see this as like Jesus' advice. Like this is what you should do or not. But Jesus didn't come to offer advice. He came to offer something bigger. So what we have to ask the question then, what is this parable about? What is this story about? So first, we have to remember the kind of first century meal setup. It was a lot different than our tables as we eat in our houses and around restaurants. And this is kind of what it looks like. It's this triclinium setup. And so there's these small tables that are on each side. And people would recline on couches. They had these couches that they would kind of sit on and as they would, they would eat together. And usually the setup would be about nine people, three people to um, uh, one of the lengths of the tables. But there was a prime position, the center. You wanted to be at the center because that showed your rank. So people would show up early, get this, they would show up early to somebody else's dinner just so they could try to get the prime seating and that they could show off. It's kind of like today, you know, we jockey for shotgun, right? If you're driving with one of your kids or whatever, it's like, you know, you call shotgun, you take that seat, you know, you get to sit up front, everybody else gets to sit in the back, ha, ha, ha. You know, I remember that in, in my house. But, but it was very common for the trained and the educated and the high-status people to imagine that they deserved those spots, that they worked hard for this, right? They are seen, they're, they're, they're known. And so there's a deeper meaning here for Luke as well. So Jesus is not just sharing to say, well, maybe you're not as high as you think you are, as highfalutin as you think you are. But Luke is also, remember, Luke is writing this to people who came after Jesus. He's writing this to a community, a mix of, of people that were Jewish and some people that were not. And this whole mix of people, that's like his audience, his purpose in writing his whole gospel. And so at the time that he's writing this, he's also communicating to people that would look basically come, who were, grew, grew up religious, who grew up Jewish, who would look down on the non-Jews, the people that came to faith in Jesus but didn't come from a religious background. And, and there was this kind of like condescending view towards them. So Luke is kind of talking in two levels here. He's talking to the people that are reading this but he, and, and listening to this, but he's also sharing about what's happening in Jesus' time as well. And so there, he's basically saying, like, first off, there's, there's no second-rate citizens of, in the kingdom of God. 
There's no second-rate people. There's no second-rate Christians. Just because you grew up religious and maybe your parents brought you up and you have this background and this knowledge and somebody didn't and they're newer to the faith, that doesn't make you like greater than them. Um, that's why like, if, I, if I ever join you for a small group gathering or have a small group over my house, a Bible study, um, and we're sitting in a circle, like I, and the young adults will, will let you know this, I hate like rings. Like, if we're sitting in a circle, there's no, like, outer ring. It, like, it bothers me because it seems like, you know, there's these people that are kind of sitting on the fringes, like, looking, basically facing somebody else's back. It's like, you're a second-rate citizen here. Like, no, we're all sitting together, right? We're all sitting shoulder to shoulder. And, and it's interesting because, as stated in the story, isn't it true? It's often in the small, often trivial acts that our character and our thoughts are revealed, so Jesus' response to seeing these people coming in and jockeying for a position, who's going to get the middle seat? Who's, I call it, you know, that type of thing. Imagine they were probably doing that kind of stuff. But his response is a story. His response this time is a story. And he tells a story about a wedding feast. And he's giving this, this idea, when you arrive, take the lowest seat. So meaning that don't take what you think you deserve. Don't take what looks good or what puffs you up or puts you in a higher position. But the second part, the second part that he gets to, to the host, is to invite others who may seem below you. Others who may seem below you that other people might look at and say, like, why are you hanging with them? Like, don't you know, like, nobody does that. Nobody wants them. And what he's getting at here is that hosts at this time, and I think also in ours, hosting can be a means of gaining power over another. Hosting basically puts somebody else in debt. There's strings attached. You would only invite people who could return the favor. You know, we do this all the time. You know, I'm only going to ask her to lunch, you know, because I know that, like, she'll invite me over the next time. I'm only going to send birthday and Christmas cards to the people that, what, send them to me. Like, we do that. And they were doing that with these tables, with, with inviting people over. However, in the kingdom of God, we have to recognize God is the host. God is the host. And who can repay that favor? Who can repay that? God is the host of us all, and we are ultimately the guests. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve anything in return. And it's interesting that throughout Luke's gospel, he keeps recalling that the, the poor, the maimed, the blind, he says, you know, serve them, but, but not only just meeting their needs. What does he say in this story? Invite. Invite. See, when you serve someone and you hand them stuff, it says, okay, well, you know, I care about your needs and I want you to have these things. But when you invite, it means I care about you. More than just what you have or what you don't have, I invite you. I want, I want to be in relationship with you. I see you as a treasured human being. See, it's about relationship. We're not in the business of fixing anybody. People, nobody is a project to be fixed. See, our offer of hospitality, it actually, the word hospitality actually means the love of a stranger, the love of a stranger. And when we're sitting at the table together, when we're breaking bread, isn't it interesting that food is a common denominator regardless of what your economic status is, what your background is, where you're from, or what you've done. But when you break bread, something happens there. It's the great equalizer. So that's where we lift up. We lift up. See, there's a tendency for some of us to, to, to miss the point and to say, well, I, I deserve this. You know, we do this in church sometimes, too. 
You say, well, I've been a member of this church for however long. Like, I like it this way. You know, and that's wonderful. But what about those who don't know Christ? You know, what about reaching them? I was teaching a training yesterday um, with a bunch of Mennonites out in Lancaster. It was really, really interesting. And um, one of my colleagues who was with me, um, I always learn from different people as I, as I talk and do different things. And, and he was sharing about his family. He has three kids. And he was sharing about the statistics show that only one out of his three kids will continue in the faith. That's like the, the statistics. He's lucky if he's blessed if one out of his three, the three kids, you know, what if, what if we would put aside our even likes and preferences and say, oh, well, I like it that way, to say, well, what is going to connect with people that don't know Jesus? People that feel like church is a foreign place. People that maybe, you know, they're just kind of on the edge of things, but by doing something, by implementing something, by holding an event or activity, by, by changing how we do things, what if that would connect with somebody in a better way? See, the best leaders put aside their preferences for others. The best leaders are the people that have made differences, the greatest difference in your life, I'm sure. They probably leveraged their power and their preferences for you. A couple years ago, I was a part of a um, cohort of female leaders, and um, I was learning all different things, and we would come together and talk and, about our struggles and things we were going through. And I remember this one question that someone asked was, um, who is somebody that made the biggest difference in your life? Who is somebody that made a big difference in your life? And I remember the gals that part of that group all shared their stories, and it was very interesting it most often involved somebody in a high position or a higher position than them and somebody that invested time in them. Somebody that, that had all the things, maybe they were, a, a, this was in ministry, but also in business, they were a high business leader or they owned their own company, they were an entrepreneur or they had, didn't have much time or they were a lead pastor somewhere and they invested and used what they had to lift someone else up. And I have to say, same thing in my life, that, that the people that, that have invested in me, that have put aside themselves in order to pour into, it makes a difference. They leverage their power. But see, there's an implied warning here in this story too, not just telling us to lift people up, because the danger is sometimes by lifting people up, we're pushing ourselves up. We have to be careful that humility does not become a strategy for self-exaltation. That without reason, realizing it, even well-meaning sometimes, without realizing it, serving, lifting up other people, it can actually become a source of righteousness. We have to watch that. It's easy for us, especially when you begin to lift others up, it's easy to begin to look down on others who are not as kind as you, not as generous as you, maybe not as just as you, that we need to be careful that our humility does not exalt ourselves because very good things can turn into self-righteousness and a condescending attitude. That we don't take the low seat as a means to move up. That's not the expectation. The expectation is that we take the low seat because we know that not only do we not deserve it, but we know that in God's eyes, he says here, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. We don't do it for others we do it for God. But there's a third conflict. So remember, like I told you, there's a lot of stuff going on around this table. Imagine being a part of that conversation. 
And so this is the kind of last piece that takes place around this interesting table. So when one of those at the table with him heard this, remember he told this story of the wedding feast, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feasts of the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man, okay, he goes in a story again, right? Story time, okay, everybody get ready. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all, like, began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. So another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant went back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited originally will get a taste of my banquet. Third conflict, the guest's agenda is rejection. Jesus' agenda is reception. It's a simple parable about throwing a party. There was a custom of inviting. You kind of, we do a similar thing. We do save the date. And then we extend the invitation. They did a similar thing. They extended an invitation and then went back and said, hey, y'all coming? So it's kind of the same thing. So they extended the invitation the first time. And all these people said, absolutely, we will be there. Well, the servant goes out when it's closer to the date and says, hey, you guys coming? And then he's met with all these excuses. And so what happens for them in between, right, is the circumstances changed. No longer is the meal, this banquet, as important as it once was. And it's interesting because the excuses they give were not trivial. They weren't trivial things. It wasn't like, oh, man, like, you know, my car stopped running or, you know, oh, I lost track of time or that kind of thing. You know, there's things that we make up when we're late. Um, but he, what's revealed here are economic pressures to say, hey, I got this field and like basically your life depended upon that. Are you going to eat tomorrow? You know, um, recent wedding, you know, which was actually, is, get this, if you just got married, you were excused from military duty for a couple of weeks. So it, these are legit responses. But in the story, God's offer, he's the host, God's offer has priority it has priority that we need to remember not just over our worst situations, but also over our best agendas. We're easy, it's easy to go to God with the times that you're feeling down and you need help and you can't do it by yourself. But what about when we have the best agendas, when things are going right, when things are moving ahead with us? It's, we, we turn to rejecting. We kind of push God in a little box to the side and say, okay, well, I'll get to you when I need you again. See, the unexpected turn in the story is that the invitation is going out to those who are not part of that same social circle. Who, he turns to the streets. And this is a symbol of Jesus in Galilee, that he's going around and he's sharing the good news. He's healing people. He's bringing on disciples. Crowds are beginning to follow him, but at the same time, many reject him. Many turn away. Many refuse. But there's also those that are delighted to be included in the kingdom of God. 
And, and that's us, right? It, our, it's an invitation to receive, to receive others, even those who are unlikely. See, Jesus really intends, first of all, for his hearers, for us that are listening into this, to take him literally on who he is to invite, that we are to invite people that are unlikely to be invited. And not everyone will respond. That's the truth. But some will. And you might be surprised who might respond to your invitation. When was the last time you had someone who was different than you join you for supper or lunch or breakfast? See, Jesus, for Jesus, he's about expanding the, the horizon, expanding the kingdom, including those all who want desire to be included. See, Jesus is more concerned about where you're going than where you are. I want to share with you, wrap up today, a brief, a brief story. And that story um, takes place in Zimbabwe. There was a farmer. And um, he had cows that were there, and there was an American that went over um, as part of a trip and saw this farmer with these cows. And the American goes to the farmer and says, hey, you don't got any fences. Like, where I'm from, you know, I'm from Texas or wherever in the Midwest, like, we have to put fences in order to keep our cows together. Like, how are you doing it? How do you don't lose cows? They don't just wander off. And the farmer looked at him and smiled and said, we don't build fences, we just dig wells. We just dig wells. That the cows know where the water is and that's what keeps them close. That's what keeps them heading together. So I'm gonna draw the parallel for you. This is our approach to Jesus. That, that many times it's this idea of a centered set and bounded set. We have a little graphic for you to look up. So this is traditionally the idea of the church. We have boundaries. You're in or you're out. You believe these things, you check the box, you say yes to Jesus, or if you don't, then you're on the outside. So we know who is in, who's an insider, who's an outsider, and that tends to be, for many years, that tends to be the way that we look at things. But Jesus introduces a different model, and that's the center of the well, which is ironic because Jesus himself is the living water, right? It's this idea of a centered set. That Jesus cares more about your direction than where you are. That if you're stagnant, if you're inside, but you're standing there and you're not heading towards Jesus, what is that? See, Jesus cares about, are you heading towards the well? Or are you heading away? Because that's the more important thing. See, Jesus becomes the host, the one that we're heading towards. And, and, and dare I say, we should be coming more and more like him if we're headed towards him. Anybody that you're close with? Um, we were joking about this in the office this week um, when Jet, pastors Jeff and Becky um, showed up and they're wearing like the same color and I kidded like pretty soon you're gonna be wearing the same like clothing. And, and you know people like that have been married for multiple years and they've actually dressed the same. Who knows? Like you begin to think the same. You begin to, when you grow close to someone, you can't help but become more and more like them. And that's what Jesus desires of us, that as we grow closer and closer, as we head closer and closer to the well, we're, we're facing him and he's rubbing, we're rubbing elbows with him and we're becoming more and more like him. See, the caution is to think we're on the inside, but yet we're no longer inviting others to come closer. See, the guy in the story who made the comment about being blessed to eaten the kingdom, he would have been a bit surprised at Jesus' response because he thought he was on the inside. But yet, he felt confident that he had a reserved seat for himself. But in the story that Jesus describes, those who do show up to the banquet, those who are heading towards Jesus, 
it's a little bit different than what he had expected. See, Jesus is flipping things upside down. Jesus changes your agenda. He changes, he will change your agenda if you allow him to. He's like a gentleman. He doesn't intrude. He offers, but we respond. Jesus changes the agenda, and that's the taste of the kingdom. That's the key to conflict around tables, because conflict can be transformative. It can change us. If we humble ourselves and say, God, what are you doing in the midst of this? Are you revealing something about me? Help me to become more and more like you. Help me to grow towards you as the living water. Don't let our agendas get in the way of what God wants to do. But the good news is that time and time again, God chooses relationship over agenda. That there's never a one and done deal. There's never a, I've already approached you a hundred times with an invitation. I'm giving up on 101. No, God doesn't do that. He offers to us this opportunity to align our responsibility and our will with his. Jesus changes our agenda. He can change. He can change yours. He can change mine. On a day-to-day basis, as we walk with him in building the kingdom of God, the question is, will we? Will we?